Let's pray together. Holy Father, in the light of that word, how then should we live? May the Spirit of Christ who spoke through Christ teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four weeks ago, if you had come to me and said, Hey, Dwight, which one of these two animals do you want to be? I would have made a selection. But now, four weeks later, I know I would have changed my answer. The reason I would change my answer now is because of what my friend Bruce Moyer sent to me uh, three weeks ago. He sent me a page from Joshua Cooper Ramos' new book, The Age of the Unthinkable. The book just came out. And after reading that page, I think I'd switch. Let me give you a little background to where we're going. The British philosopher Isaiah Berlin was the one who years ago said the world's thinkers can be divided into, into two categories. There are the hedgehog thinkers. Those, who, those are the thinkers who latch on to one idea and stay with it through their lives. And then, Isaiah Berlin said, there are the fox-type thinkers. Those, those are the thinkers who dart from idea to idea to idea. There they are. Hedgehog, fox. I would have said I want to be a hedgehog a few weeks ago. But now let me tell you why I want to be a fox. Isaiah Berlin said, by the way, you want, you want examples of hedgehog, hedgehog thinkers. These are great names. Plato, Pascal, Nietzsche. They're all great philosophers. You want the examples of uh, fox kind of thinkers. That would be Aristotle, Erasmus, and Goethe, the uh, German philosopher. But then I'm reading, I'm reading Ramos. And he begins to describe a fascinating discovery. A political scientist and psychologist named Philip Tetlock, teaches at University of California, Berkeley, discovered that you could put thinkers into this fox and hedgehog category and ascertain their ability to prognosticate about the future, their ability to predict. Now, let me just begin reading here uh, out of Ramos' book. Tetlock... UC Berkeley, and his team interviewed hundreds of experts on subjects such as economics, international relations, and politics, and asked them to make predictions about the short-term future, the next five years. What do you think is going to be happening in the economy the next five years? So on and so on. All right? Then they divided the subjects of the study into a number of categories, optimists and pessimists, left and right-wing political persuasion, foxes and hedgehogs. After some time, Tetlock's team reviewed prediction sheets to see who was most often right. They found, now listen up, that the only reliable predictor was the one that divided thinkers into foxes and hedgehogs. Low scores, quoting Tetlock now, low scores look like hedgehogs, he wrote later. They are thinkers who know one big thing and aggressively extend the explanatory reach of that one big thing into new domains. I'm hanging on to this. I'm hanging on. But the high scores, he said, look more like foxes. They were skeptical of easy historical analogy. They tended to be more probabilistic in their thinking, and they were comfortable updating their models. Now, I'm going to put the next words on the screen because I need you to follow the logic here. Put it on the screen. It wasn't, I'm reading Ramos now, it wasn't, Tetlock explained, that the foxes knew any more or less about the subject. After all, they were experts. They're all experts. It was how they acquired and updated their knowledge that seemed to matter. The more wide-ranging their curiosity, the more accurate they tended to be. 
Now, hold on. The problem, he suspected, was the hedgehog personalities were generally very eager, too eager for closure. They stuck with one big idea precisely because they wanted to know it completely, to have the sensation of reaching a total and final understanding as if they had finished the Saturday New York Times crossword in pen. Look, I did the whole thing in pen. I never had to change one answer. Wow. So, why am I fascinated by this? Because I'm wondering. I'm thinking. Maybe the sons of Issachar are like foxes. Let me explain. Open the Bible to our theme text. We began a miniseries just last Sabbath together. Open the Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. I want to I kind of brood over this with you for a moment. Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. This is fascinating. If you didn't, by the way, you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible right in front of you. Let me give you the page number. It would be page 285. Pew Bible's in the New King James Version. That is the translation I'll be reading from this morning. All right? First Chronicles chapter 12. A list of the tribes. How many, how many soldiers they, they contributed to the New King David's army? Well, we're going to skip the rest of the tribe because we've got a very small tribe here. They're called Issachar. Notice how, they are, how their identification marker is established. Watch this. First Chronicles 12, verse 32. And of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200 and all their brothers at their command. Small tribe, but a fascinating identification marker. Did you catch that marker? Let me put it on the screen for you. Number one, they understood the times. Okay? And as a consequence, number two, they knew what Israel ought to do. We're calling it the Issachar Factor. Small little tribe that we met for the first time last week. I believe, here's where where I'm going. I'm suggesting they are best described as foxes. Let's go back to that Joshua uh, Cooper Ramos quotation for a moment. Grab, Grab your study guide. I want you to take a look at it, a much closer look at that one quotation we put up on the screen. Grab your study guide. It should be tucked away in your worship bulletin. If you didn't get a study guide, hold your hands up. Our friendly ushers are coming your way up into the balcony as well. Just hold your hands up. Glad to have you here today. Just ask, just keep your hand up and we'll get that study guide to you. And we're delighted to have those of you who are joining us on television today. You can have the same study guide. Let me put it on the screen for you so that you know what you're looking for. You're looking for this mini-series. We're, we're plunging into part two of this mini-series. You see it there on your screen now. The Issachar Factor. Fascinating line from ancient uh, scripture that has strong application for a generation today. The Issachar Factor, we're plunging now into part two. When you find part two, it'll say study guide. You click on the study guide, you will have the same study guide we have, and you get this Joshua Cooper Ramos quotation. You'll want that quotation. All right? Everybody have a study guide? Good. Let's go. Were the children of, Israel, children of Issachar rather more like foxes than hedgehogs? I'm suggesting they are. Let's read that again. Fill it in. It wasn't Tetlock. University of California, Berkeley. It wasn't, the professor explained, that the foxes, write that down, those are the ones whose prediction scores were the highest. They knew how to read the times. It wasn't that they, were, that they, that they knew any more or less about the subject. After all, they were experts too. It was how the foxes acquired and updated their knowledge that seemed to matter. The more wide-ranging their curiosity. That's a key word. Write that down. That's a word I want you to have. I want you to become curious. 
the more wide-ranging their curiosity, the more accurate they tended to be. The problem, he suspected, was the hedgehog, write that in, the hedgehog personalities were generally very eager, too eager for closure. They stuck with one big idea precisely because they wanted to know it completely. They had the sensation of reaching a total and final understanding as if they had finished the Saturday New York Times crossword in pen. Wow, I got it all. Never had to change my view once. What's that have to do with the Issachar factor? A lot. Keep your pen moving. Jot it down. Tetlock's research reveals that the highest predictor for understanding of the times. Remember, Issachar is able to understand the times. The highest predictor is a wide-ranging and probing curiosity that drives thinkers to acquire and update their knowledge. Leading me to wonder out loud, could that be one of the critical factors, one of the critical components to the sons of Issachar? What made them, with this uncanny ability to discern what is still coming down the line, and then to know how to respond. Could it be that this, uh, this, this sense of what's coming comes from a wide-ranging curiosity? And could it be that those who are the spiritual descendants of Issachar, we who want the Issachar factor, could it be that'll be our key too? In fact, jot this down, will you? The Issachar factor is the gift of an unusual discernment. Now, look, we're not going to unpack that. That was last week. If you missed last week, go back to that website, download it. You can listen to it at your leisure. You've got to have part one as we build on it for part two. Okay, so last week was about discernment. The Issachar factor is the gift of an unusual discernment of the times that is predicated upon a wide-ranging curiosity of the trends. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to think about these trends. I want to think about the trends. Because isn't it amazing? You think about this. It's no accident, I would suggest, that when Christ decided to line up for his disciples, he said, I'm going to give you the human, I'm going to give you the human societal trends that will peak simultaneously just before I return. Last week in, in Matthew 16, verse 3, he calls them the signs of the times. Those are his words. He said, hey, guys, you can read the signs of the sky. Red skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. By the way, those are Christ's words. He says, you can read the signs in the sky. Why can't you read the signs of the times? I'm wondering. Perhaps it is no accident that when Jesus strings these together in the Gospels, we don't have a, we don't have a one trend list we have a string of trends. He's thinking like a fox. He's putting the trends together. When you see all of these ascending together, look out. I'm about to return. In fact, I want to take you to what some scholars call the little apocalypse. Matthew 24. Go, go. We were in the Old Testament. Now let's go to the New Testament. Here is Jesus' great signs of the times chapter. This is amazing. I want you to take a look at this. And a brood. Keep the brooding going with me. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 sets us up. We want to know. We want to understand the times. In fact, the disciples had a little bit of the Issachar factor in them because they come to Jesus here in verse 3. Let's read it here. Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign? Here we go now. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Tell us. We want that Issachar factor. Jesus is all right. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Now, he could have put the, he could have put the 
period right there. Say, okay, that's it. I've given you one big hedgehog sign. This thing's going to grow over centuries. But when that thing's huge, then you'll know. But he doesn't do it. He goes on and lists seven global trends. I tell you what, for a preacher, it is very tempting to not only give you these seven, but comment on them as we go. I cannot do it. I'm going to rapid-fire sequence. Here they come. Notice his fox-like thinking. He says, watch for these seven trends. They will peek together. Here we go. Write it down. Number one. Trend number one, religious deception. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. False prophets will arise. I tell you what. I have a file this thick that I've started and I've just been working on for the last two years. Speaking of religious deception, I've been focusing on that like it's going out of style. And this teaching suddenly took me up by the lapels and said, Hey, boy, wait a minute. Don't be so myopic. There are a series of trends. Think like a fox, not a hedgehog. Watch for the movement of those trends together. Now I've got files. I've got files on all of these. And I'm planting a little seed in your mind, your inquisitive mind, I hope, that will lead you to go and begin a collection of these yourself. Anybody can do it. He's got eyes and a mind, which you have. All right, number one is religious deception. Number two, military conflicts. Wars and rumors of wars. Military conflicts. Got plenty of those today. Number three, natural disasters. Jesus says famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. Well, got those two, I guess. Number four. No, number, number, number five is legal breakdown. Legal breakdown. In a spirit of lawlessness, he says there in Matthew 25. Oh, mercy, are we moving in that direction? Number six, social collapse. Social collapse. The hearts of many will grow cold. Society begins to disintegrate. And trend number seven, spiritual revival. Just before I, I come, he says, gospel goes to the entire planet. Spiritual revival. Seven trends. Watch those trends. Think like a fox. Don't, don't become concentrating on one. Watch the spread. So you can do the same. Piece of cake. You know what you do? You get a shoebox. You just start stuffing in a shoebox. You got a file folder, just start putting them in. Newspaper clippings. We're talking about web releases, press releases. We're talking about essays. We're talking about books. We're talking about, I heard it on television. You begin to assemble your own collection. Watch the trends. Jesus says, think like a fox. Watch these seven as they ascend together. Then you know. Hey, by the way, with cyberspace and this glut of information today, there's no excuse for you and me not to be able to trend. I mean, there's so many websites that are trending now. You can just follow the trenders as they analyze the trends. But here's the question. What's the big deal, Dwight? I mean, come on. Why should we track Jesus' list of trends at all? Are they going to enable us to, to zero in on the date of his return? I'm telling you what, no, 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 Jesus is unequivocal. You cannot know. Don't, don't go to these trends to try to find out the date for my coming. In fact, just turn the page. Boy, he doesn't want us to get into this, this trap. Uh, what is this? Verse 36, same chapter, Matthew 24. Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. There's no way Christ ever intended for these global trends to become a calculus for the date of his return. Too many Christians have crashed on that heap. Trust me, you don't want to go down that road. Can we know the times? Yep. Can we know the date? Nope. Don't get sucked into that. There are people out there on the web who would love to have you know they finally figured it out. They got the date. It's a killer. Because if the date is too far, you're in trouble. If the date is too soon... you 
Forget the date. Then why, then why track these predicted uh, trends at all? I'll tell you why. Answer, Issachar factor. Issachar factor. Let me put it on the screen again for you. First Chronicles 12. They had understanding of the times. Now notice this. To know what Israel ought to do. Would you jot it down? The Issachar factor? To decipher the times in order to decide the response. Jot that down. We've got to decipher the times for a reason. To decide the response. Divine revelation is always for the sake of human response. God doesn't get his jollies over saying, hey, let me show you how much I know that you don't know. Wow, look at that. Nope. God says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to reveal some information to you, but the information should lead you to react. You must respond to this. Decipher the trends in order to decide the response. And what's what's the response Christ would have us bring? Trend number seven. That's it. Hands down. It's trend number seven. Let's, let's, let's look at trend number seven, verse 14. Same chapter. And this gospel. Oh, you know these words. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. I.e., now hold on. As we witness an acceleration of the trends... As we witness an acceleration of the trends, we are then to accelerate our response, namely his mission. (laughs) Accelerate. Acceleration of the trends, accelerate our response. I found a line corroborating this several years ago when I was reading that classic on the life of Jesus, The Desire of Ages. It's in your study guide. Take a look at this line. With vigilant watching, we are to combine earnest working. Okay, you got to watch. you got to watch. Follow the trends. Respond. With vigilant watching, we are to combine earnest working because, because we know that the Lord is at the door. These trends, these indicators are all rising together. Our zeal is quickened to cooperate with the divine intelligences in the working for the salvation of souls. That's it. Jot it down, will you? The shorter our time, the greater our zeal, and the more earnest our mission. The shorter the time, the greater our zeal, and the more earnest our mission. Hey, listen, just think about this. Come on. When you've been told by your doctor that you have five months to live, and trust me, I know this, I've had the sacred privilege of being up close and personal as parishioners have lived through this. When you've been told by your physician you have five months or five weeks You can know that suddenly everything peripheral is dropped off and only that which deeply matters to you will occupy your time. Is that not true? Of course it is. Who has time for the rest? The shorter our time, the greater our zeal, the more earnest our mission. That was precisely the point Jesus was trying to hammer into the minds of his disciples on that very sunny Sabbath afternoon. We know it's Sabbath. I'm guessing it's sunny because it's Jerusalem. All right? Take a look at this. Our last line that we will look up together. The Gospel of John. Read for us just a moment ago by Edwin Buck. Go to John. Page 722 in the Pew Bible. See, here's, this is precisely the point Jesus is making. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, 
Let's get a little context for this. Let's, let, let's begin in verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by that Sabbath afternoon, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Hey, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, watch this, verse 4. I, some, trans, some manuscripts read we. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. That's it. Now, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is speaking of his, of his impending death, the dark night of Calvary. I understand that. But his words are just as prescient for a generation living on the edge of eternity. We've got to work while it's day. Night is coming. Night is coming. We must do the works of him who sent us while it is day. For the night is coming when no one can work. Hey, didn't we used to sing an old gospel song? Uh, how's it go? Uh, work for the night is coming. Wasn't there a song like that? Work for the night is coming. Yeah. That's based on John 9, 4. Work while it's light. While you can. The shorter our time, the greater our zeal, the more earnest our mission. But I've got to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm going to say this. This will get everybody here off the hook. I'm going to say, present company accepted. All right? So you're not in this. But I know some people who have gotten themselves deep into trouble by some mistaken thinking. I mean, they think. Here's how they think. They think that if they can convince God to accelerate these seven trends simultaneously, that society will have to collapse and the world will be thrown into such global chaos that the end will have to come and Jesus will come again. Hallelujah. That is such misguided thinking that I'm going to lay on you right now. I carry, this, I carry this one line in my Bible. It is a very sober, waving away. Wait, don't go there. One line. You've got it in your study guide and you have to fill it in. One line written a century ago. Isn't this something? The work which the church has failed to do in a time of peace and prosperity, she will have to do in a terrible crisis under most discouraging and forbidding circumstances. Isn't that amazing? Jot it down. Terrible crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no automatic get-out-of-jail-free card for the church when society implodes and earth begins her final meltdown. God doesn't step in and say, oh, man, this is so bad. Sorry you didn't do what I asked you to do. Guess, hey, step over. Guess I'm going to have to take this up and finish it myself. No way, Jose. He will not do it. If it's bad now, guess what? You still got to do it. You still have the mission I gave you. There is no pass. Why? Oh, it's easy. Jot it down, will you? Because the whole point of the Gospel Commission is that it is to be a co-mission that we share with Christ. That's it. It's co. Co means together with. The Gospel Commission is a co-mission with Christ. Hey, look. Come on, please. God can finish His work anytime He wants to, can He? Just like that. He can finish it. But as every parent knows, who invites his son or her daughter to stand by daddy or mommy and do the same work, 
It isn't so much about task accomplishment. We've got some young parents here. Please, you could do the thing faster yourself. Isn't that true? It isn't so much about task accomplishment as it is about relational bonding. We're going to do the same thing together. You're going to be right here beside Daddy, and Daddy's going to be right here beside you. And we're going to move through this together. And as we do the work, we're going to get closer and closer and closer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a co-mission. Co-mission. Because if we don't share the Father's work, we will never share the Father's heart. And if we don't share the Father's heart, we will never share the Father's home. I promise you. No Father's heart, no Father's home. Please, we do it together. That means when this whole thing melts down and we're not done, we still do it together. How did Jesus put it here? We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Come on. we got a wide open door right now. We need to be working right now. The door is wide open. Let us do, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one, no one can work. So here's the question. Wrap it up with this question. How would you like to be in co-mission with Christ? Wouldn't you like to? I mean, we're not talking about rocket science here. We're not talking about the accumulation of multiple degrees until you can do this. I want to share with you in closing seven simple steps where you can be drawn in to Jesus' co-mission every single day of your life. I don't care where you spend this summer or Memorial Day weekend. Seven simple steps. I'll end with these. I'm going to fly through them. Number one, jot it down, please. Make yourself available daily in prayer. Make yourself available daily in prayer. So you begin the day. Dear God, look it. I realize it's a commission. So I, what, what I want to do is I want to make myself available to you today. I need you to open my eyes. Let, let, me, let me sense when you're bringing something to be, something to bear. Let, let, let me know that an opportunity is presenting itself. Make yourself available at the beginning of every day. I tell you what, when I prayed that prayer and... The times when I get some enforced contact with people that, I, that are strangers to me are the times that I fly. When I pray before I fly, I'm amazed. The door's opening. And conversation, I just came back from Arkansas. And so I'm sitting beside the vice president of a company that services Walmart. And we fall into conversation. He's a dad. I'm a dad. And he's Presbyterian. And we're talking together. And we get into spiritual things. And... Send him a book. He writes a handwritten note back. Hey, Dwight, thanks for this. I'm reading a book now. When I pray, I'm amazed at how doors open. But when I do not pray, man, I'm so tired, God. I don't want to talk to nobody today. Guess what? God says, okay, you're not worth talking to anybody today. Sleep, boy. (laughs) I find that the prayer makes a difference. So number one. Jot it down, please. Make yourself available daily in prayer. Number two, look for opportunities throughout the day. Don't guess what it's going to look like. It could be a phone call. Any, any encounter can turn out to be more than chance. A phone call, a visit at the gas station. When I'm in this village pumping gas, I'm meeting people all the time. You don't have to be... You don't have to be uh, uh, what's this personality type where the people are just always sanguine? You don't have, you don't have to be sanguine. You don't have to be sanguine. You're just pumping gas, but the guy's right beside you on the other side of the pump. 
You're going to have these. I'm in the grocery line. You're in the grocery line. It doesn't matter. Look for opportunity throughout the day. Number three, because it's going to stand right in front of you. Number three, take the natural route. Now, this is very important. I need to affirm some of you great thinkers, whether you're hedgehog or foxes, that there's nothing wrong with with innocuous chit-chat. Some people who have become educated for a long time aren't excited about innocuous little chatter. I don't have time for that. My dear friend, innocuous chit-chat is the door to meaningful encounter. You have to start innocuous. So humble yourself and talk about the weather. Talk about the stock market. Talk about the delay on the tarmac, the news. What do you do for a living? It's just innocuous. I understand that. But boom, just like that, it works. You don't need to blurt out, Jesus is coming, repent, sinner. (laughs) That's not it. You're losing. (laughs) Sleep. Sleep on the plane. (laughs) Better to sleep. So, so here's the point. Be winsome and friendly. Take the natural route. We're not having to say, oh, oh, no, just the natural route. Let it flow. You'll get there. Okay, that was number three. Take the natural route. Number four, watch for a transition point to make a spiritual point. This is very important because you're in this now. You didn't plan to be. You suddenly realize I'm having a conversation with a stranger. Oh, that's right. I prayed this morning that I would you know, meet somebody. So now you're on the alert. The Holy Spirit is saying, hey, 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 hey. Watch this. Watch for a transitional point to make a spiritual point. God will give you the words. Don't worry about it. Just watch for that point. I love the story of Nehemiah for that reason. Nehemiah, you remember, has been praying to God all night long, and now he's serving the king the next morning. And in the middle of a sentence, hit blindsided, the king said, Hey, boy, what do you want? And Nehemiah says, And I darted a prayer to heaven. It was not a long prayer. It was only one word. Help! Anne Lamott, in her wonderful little book, Traveling Mercies, writes, that's my favorite prayer, help. And look what happens. Luke chapter 12, I love this in the New Living Translation. Luke chapter 12, verse 11, Jesus says, and when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't you worry. Come on, don't you worry about what you're going to have to say. Don't even think about it. Look at the next verse, verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you what needs to be said even as you are standing there. Isn't that great? While you're standing there, something comes into your mind. Speak it. Number five, be open to a follow-up. See, a lot of people have these chance encounters and that's it. Bye. Well, I did something. Well, of course you did. Why don't you set up a follow-up? Offer a book. Hey, by the way, I got something. I got something you need to read. I got a magazine I want to pass along your way. I got a study guide I'd like to give you. Be open to a follow-up. Herbert Nanette, just a moment ago, That's how we got together. She writes this email. She's feeling terrible. I write her an email back. The very last line says, I hope someday we can get together. She shoots an email back. Yeah, let's do. Good. I'll be down. The follow-up is what leads to the the conversation. The first meeting is nothing. The first meeting is just setting you up. So don't close your mind to the possibility of a follow-up. Now, I I can't tell you how many people I've given books to on planes who never write me back. Oh, this is such a great book, Dwight. Thank you. No, not a word. That's okay. I'm just one tiny little link in a long chain that God is weaving to draw that heart to Him. I don't have to be big link. I'm just a little one. Just one word sometimes. God says, I just needed you for one word. Thank you. Goodbye. That's great. 
Just be used. Uh, number six, solicit help in your mission. This is important. Don't be afraid to ask somebody to help you. I mean, I talk to a friend, talk to a colleague, call the pastor. If you've got eight pastors on this staff, there's nothing wrong with, wrong with calling up and saying, hey, listen, I can't believe it. I told a guy I'm going to send him a book. I have no idea what book I'm sending him. Well, what, do you, what, what, what was the conversation? People will help you just like that. Go over here to the ABC. They'll do that just like that. Oh, I've got a magazine for you. Here's a little pamphlet. Here's a book. Don't be afraid to ask for help. We're not trying to prove that we're some kind of authority in anything. We're just human beings meeting other human beings. Number seven, finally, give to mission needs and volunteer for mission tasks. I like that. Because you know what that means, don't you? It means, it means keep your heart in this co-mission posture. So somebody comes up and stands up here in church or in chapel and the word, hey, we need more help in Benton Harbor. Hey, I'll go. I don't know what I'm going to do that. I'll go. Just go. Keep yourself in a posture of co-mission. Somebody says, we need help down here in the serv- a community service center. Go. I'll, you can count on me. Show up. We're going to have evangelistic meetings coming up this next uh, winter. Show up. Volunteer. Be a part. Now I want to tell you about the giving part. Come on, I need your eye now. Giving. Volunteering. Okay, we did that one. But I want to talk about giving. Giving is a part of commission. Now think care- very carefully with me. My friends, Herb and Nanette would not have been in that baptistry today. Read my lips. If some of you who three years ago in the month of May when I stood up and said, I need 90 volunteers to give $10 a week so that we can be on Michiana television and reach a 1.75 million person audience. Herb and Nanette would not have been in the baptistry today if a whole bunch of you didn't say, I can give co-mission style. I'll give 10 bucks a week. You've been given every single week and look what God has finally done. Don't you ever minimalize the giving. The giving is co-mission. It keeps you in the posture. I'll give. I'll give to AFM. I'll give to student missionaries. I'll give the new perception. I'll just give. If it involves mission, give. It'll do something to your heart. You know how it works, don't you? God gives you the money so that you can give it back. That's the way it works. I want to end with a story that Brendan Manning tells on the last page of his delightful little book, Lion and Lamb. I'm going to read it to you right here. I love this. In 1980, listen, in 1980... The day before Christmas, Richard Ballinger's mother in Anderson, South Carolina, was busy wrapping packages, and she asked her young son to shine her shoes. Soon, you can picture this, with a proud smile that only a seven-year-old can muster, he presented the shoes for inspection. His mother was so pleased that she reached into her purse and she gave him a quarter. On Christmas morning, that would be the next day, on Christmas morning, as she put on the shoes to go to church, she noticed a lump in one shoe. She took it off and found a quarter wrapped in paper, written on the paper in a child's scrawl, were the words, i done it for love. i done it for love. i done it for love. Oh, sure, come on, I understand this. 
The shorter our time, the greater our zeal, the more earnest our mission. I understand this. But the greatest reason for our commission is I've done it. I've done it for love. After all He has done for you and me. We must done it. We must done it for love. 